to the Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari. On our show today, we will continue talking about Iran policy, continue talking about the protesters, what happened to them. We're hearing less about people on the street, but more and more about the woman life freedom movement and how it does live on. And also, how far is Iran's regime from actually acquiring a weapon? We hear different headlines every day. They're two minutes away, two months away, two years away. We'll get the real facts on all of this from our good friend, Jason Brodsky, who's currently the policy director at United Against Nuclear Iran, or UANI, as we call it, with our friends there. Uh, Previously, he was Middle East analyst and editor at Iran International TV. He's been at the Wilson Center. He's been at the White House. His specialties include leadership dynamics inside Iran and the Revolutionary Guard. He's been published and featured in Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, Natural Interest, Newsweek, Jerusalem Post, Daily Beast, CNN, and also on TV, I-24, BBC Persian, and of course, Voice of America. Jason, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Of course. And um, for those of you who are interested in foreign policy, specifically uh, Iran, the Middle East, I highly encourage you to follow Jason on Twitter, where he puts up uh, very important and timely articles as well as commentary. Um, Jason, I think you are, you know, very well positioned and you have a finger on the pulse of a lot more than just Iran uh, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of global affairs. I usually start my guests off with a little bit of a grading exercise. Looking at Biden's foreign policy right now across the board, what grade would you give him? I would give him uh, a C. Uh, I think that he has done uh, well in forming a coalition uh, in Ukraine uh, of uh countries that are committed to um, international peace and security and upholding those uh, Western values. Uh, But uh, on Iran and the Middle East, uh, the story is not as positive. I think that that uh, policy has been uh, woefully inadequate. It's been very disappointing that we have been unable as a country to move on from this JCPOA paradigm. Uh, There is uh, an inability to articulate a forward-looking Iran strategy and policy. We are uh, stuck with uh, very uh, repetitive messaging about uh, the Islamic Republic that really doesn't delve into what vision the United States has uh, as to U.S.-Iran strategy. And so that has been of great disappointment. And I think that there's also a lack of confidence from our traditional partners in the Middle East as to our... uh, our reliability in the region. And that's a very big problem. And we've seen that, and I'm sure we'll speak more about it with the China broker deal between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia and normalizing relations. So uh, there is a lot of room for improvement. I see you gave him a a C and maybe strategically you did that because when you get a C, you can't take the course again. If you get a D or F, you can repeat. So he can't really be reelected in your minds, right? But let's unpack a lot of of what you laid out, and particularly his policy in the Middle East. Um, You know, let's move over to to Iran and what's going on on the ground there. Six months of protests. I think the Iranian people, 
did a phenomenal job at being uh, citizen journalists, getting their stories out without, you know, uh, reporters on the ground, you know, traditionally in the Western media lens. If you don't have a reporter on the ground standing in the middle of wherever that may be, Tahrir Square, or in this case, in the middle of Tehran, in the middle of the protest, then it didn't really happen. But um, ever since the Green Revolution of 2009, the Iranians changed all that. And they said, here we are. We're going to put our story out there ourselves. And that's why one of the reasons that revolution was called the Green Revolution and, and also called the Twitter Revolution uh, is because they, they started that. And of course, that took on steam with the Arab Spring and everything else. And I say this to say, they for six months, the Iranians um, really tried to get the world's attention. I mean, celebrities, social media. I mean, thank God for social media, right? They're on Instagram. They're on um, Telegram, all over, uh, posting these videos. And they did They did a great job. A lot of, again, uh, unlikely partners um, in, in Hollywood and, and athletes and such. But they weren't able to capture the hearts and minds of those in, in the White House. Um, and, you know, we want to talk a bit about the policy there and why that is the case. Um, I just got back from, from DC about, what was it, four or five weeks ago. And I, and I, I thought it was interesting because I sat on a few different panels. I did a few briefings for members of Congress. And I thought one of the incorrect uh, statements that was thrown out a lot is that people would say the Biden administration doesn't have an Iran policy. And I would very quickly say they absolutely have a, an Iran policy. This is their Iran policy. They would love to appease the mullahs. They would love to get closer to them. And they would, in, in doing so, have to ignore what's going on on the ground. You know, talk a bit about, you're, you're in D.C., um, you see this up close. You know, what's going on and why is it that the White House has not done more for the people of Iran right now? I don't sense that the president wants to invest a great deal of political capital on Iran generally. Uh, it uh, for especially some of the more political uh, operatives in the White House, it, it, it is not exactly um, a winning proposition politically uh, for any administration. And that is because of the very fraught history uh, uh, that we had with the JCPOA in 2015. And I think that um, they're, they're, uh, the Biden administration is really employing a Goldilocks approach, not too uh, hot, not too cold, uh, with respect to the Islamic Republic trying to appease different constituencies uh, at the same time, and it's not proving satisfactory to anyone. Uh, and so that has been uh, a very... Um, uh, bad dynamic with respect to Iran strategy and policy. There are people who supported the nuclear deal in 2015 now who are saying we need a new strategy uh, and that the diplomatic track has run aground. Uh, so uh, that that has been a big disappointment, I think, and uh, we need to really reverse course. Well, I mean, do you think when you say that, I don't, I mean... I'm not sold on that only because, and let's, I'm just playing devil's advocate here and tell me what you think. Do you actually believe when you say they don't want to extend, they don't want to expend political capital. Do you not believe that somewhere deep inside Biden would want another nuclear deal to be the crown jewel of his foreign policy record this term? I'm not confident about that. I don't think that president Biden 
sees Iran as linked to his legacy in the same way that President Barack Obama did. And that is one thing that differentiates them. I think that Joe Biden is more in the direction of a Bill Clinton Democrat than a Barack Obama Democrat. Uh, You know, Obama came to office with some very unconventional views, putting it diplomatically, uh, with respect to uh, U.S. policy in the Middle East. And uh, I don't think that President Biden shares completely all those instincts. And I'll give you an example. When uh, last year there was the debate over whether the U.S. should delist the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization designation, uh, as uh, the Iranians were demanding during the Vienna talks, there were many voices who were counseling the president to do so, uh, including some who were advisors uh, during the Obama administration. And I think that if President Obama was uh, grappling with that question, he may have come to a different conclusion Mm -hmm. than President Biden had come. And that is that President Obama may have opted to delist the IRGC and take the risk politically, whereas President Biden did not. And so that I think differentiates their approach in in, in that respect. Do you think it's based more, again, playing devil's advocate here, just to take the conversation along, do you think that has more to do with these inconvenient um, narrative shifts coming from Iran? So meaning, you know, maybe during President Obama's term, it was easier to make the sell or to ignore what was coming out of Iran's regime, whereas right now it's, it's virtually impossible. Well, I think that when we were having that debate over the IRGC, that was before the Masa Amini um, protests really right. kicked into gear. And mm-hmm. so Iran was doing all the same kind of malign activity that it had been engaging in for years. Right. They, at that point, the world wasn't witnessing on a daily basis the, the poisoning, the blinding, the raping, the, the, right. the, the killing of uh, children. And so that uh, was not in place during that time. So that's what I would add on that point. Right. And then speaking of, of the protests, let's talk about that a bit. Um, you know, what what's your take on, on where the protests are right now, six months into it? Um, do you see this dying down? Do you see this going forward? Do you think this is their revolution? I think that Iran is in a pre-revolutionary phase right now. Uh, I think that we have a situation where the protests ebb and flow. That doesn't necessarily mean that the sentiment has changed. And Mm -hmm. I think it's important not to conflate the um, decrease in the amount of footage we're receiving on a daily basis Mm -hmm. on social media with the dilution of any of this underlying sentiment and grievances that the Iranian people have towards the system. And they are very clearly stating that they want regime change and they want the Islamic Republic to disappear. And uh, that is not going to change. And I think that the genie is out of the bottle when it comes to the fear factor. We are seeing really uh, incredibly brave displays of uh, civil disobedience where uh, women are being pictured uh, at uh, shopping malls in the middle of Tehran without a hijab on. Mm -hmm. And that would be have been unthinkable 
years ago. Uh, right. So uh, there's an absence of fear here. And it's going to be very difficult, in my view, for the authorities to put that genie back in the bottle. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I would add. Absolutely. I've, I've, I've said many times that that absence of fear indicates that a revolution has already taken place to a certain degree. Obviously, the end goal there being regime change for the people of Iran, which is what they're what they want and, and, and they will fight for. Mm -hmm. um, this is not a, a halfway dream by any means. Um, to continue on on that point, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the women of Iran and, of course, this um, this this round of protests being um you know, the, the catalyst being 22-year-old Massa Amini, a Kurdish-Iranian girl who was arrested and then beaten and died in custody um, for wearing improper Islamic headscarf, hijab. And then, of course, the women becoming the faces um, and the leaders in some capacity of this revolution. Of course, the men right behind them supporting them. And now you have women being blinded in one eye. There being chemical attacks against young female students, women being dragged on the street by their hair. I mean, where are, you know, the, the traditional so-called champions of human rights? Where are the Linda Sarsours of the, of the women's marches? Where are the members of Congress who speak out again, against uh, human rights abuses and, and for women's rights? Middle Eastern women, uh, Muslim women who are in Congress and um, pride themselves on being these champions of, of human rights and women's rights. And yet there's, there's silence. It's a very good question, and it's a, a question that I don't have a really good answer for, to be frank. Uh, there seems to be an obsession with human rights when, uh, in some quarters when it comes to U.S. allies and traditional partners. But when it comes to U.S. adversaries, there is this awkwardness, there is this um, silence in some cases, unfortunate and sad silence. Uh, and so that's something that uh, really uh, I don't have a good answer for. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't understand why uh, we are not, the, the Iranian people are not getting the coverage they deserve mm -hmm. in the mainstream media uh, and uh, on networks uh, regarding, uh, especially now with the poison attacks, some of the searing footage that's coming through on social media. I haven't seen a lot of attention devoted to it on CNN and other channels. So, uh, you know, that that's unfortunate, but uh, we do need to keep raising awareness on this point. Yeah, absolutely. You know how the obviously the end goal again being regime change and and the people um, coming out to really um, raise awareness about who their government is, how they treat their people, uh, the absence of human rights abuses, obviously the uh, pouring of billions of dollars into global terror. So we do try to, at least I know you do with your platforms, and we do here at the Foreign Desk and my own personal platforms, try to rate or connect the dots for people on what this regime is capable of doing and what their tentacles are doing. So whether it's their proxies in uh, Iraq or, or Syria attacking U.S. assets or the Houthis in Yemen or supporting uh, uh, Muslim uh, extremist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and Palestinian Islamic Jihad to go against is, uh, Israelis and, and blow up innocent civilians that way. You know, we try to connect all the dots and really show the Europeans and, and the Americans and anyone else who can hop on board what this regime is all about. But it seems like the people are doing the best job and really um, 
for 44 years been the Achilles heel of, of this regime. I mean, being an expert on the leadership inside Iran, I think that's always been the enigma, right? So a lot of people wonder, well, if Khamenei just croaks tomorrow, which it seems like he's going to live forever, um, you know, what's going to happen? Is this regime doomed? You know, what's going to happen? What has happened over the last six months or 44 years? I mean, how just walk us through the construct of the Islamic Republic of Iran, their government. And more specifically, has the last six months been in any way damaging towards the regime or the Revolutionary Guard? Well, it's a good question. I think that Unfortunately, in the West, there is way too much attention put on who Iran's foreign minister is, who Iran's president is, but not enough attention on who Iran's supreme leader is Mm. and his priorities, his worldview. And that is what, at the end of the day, it's the latter that matters, not the former. And that is the prevailing ideology that governs strategic decisions in the Islamic Republic. And when we have a a leadership transition, which will be inevitable, uh, Khamenei is actually turning 84 this month. And so uh, when we have it, there is already in place a process that is very institutionalized. There's an assembly of experts, but there are also constituencies on the outside, like the IRGC, who are going to be playing a very important role in that uh, process. Uh, now, um, you know, some people have felt that Ibrahim Raisi, the incumbent president, would be a natural successor to Ayatollah Khamenei. I'm not so sure that's a, a, a durable proposition because Raisi is under a lot of threat politically um, in Iran. He's being criticized by all sides. Everyone thinks the guy is incompetent. And so that raises questions as to whether Raisi was just put in that seat as a placeholder and as a seat warmer for another candidate to succeed Khamenei, potentially his son, Moshtaba Khamenei. But that opens up a whole range of issues regarding um, heredity and uh, the the, uh, resistance in the system towards uh, um, the notion of a monarchy uh, in in, in Iran uh, resurrecting again in the Islamic Republic. So anyway, that 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 dynamic is there, but the time when Khamenei passes from the scene is also going to be an important moment for the Iranian people, because will there be an outpouring in the streets demanding change? That is the time right. during that natural point. Uh, so that that is something definitely to watch. Uh, but don't think for a second that the regime is going to try to orchestrate the announcement of Khamenei's death to ensure that they get the result out of the succession process mm-hmm. that they want. So that that's what I would watch for. You know, being the an insider on what goes on um, inside the, the leadership now, here is the uh, Iranian and me coming out. We're full of conspiracy theories. Are they playing good cop, bad cop by almost making this appearance of rifts within the regime or are there actual rifts within the regime and have they been exacerbated over the last few months of political turmoil? I think that there are rifts in the regime. Absolutely. But are they decisive rifts? And I don't think they are. Right. So they want to, uh, they want to live on more than they want to uh, divide and, and, and kind of fight each other. Exactly. I think that, Khamenei is engaged in a puppet show for decades. 
to fool um, Western audiences into thinking that there is the uh, ability for the Islamic Republic to uh, adapt and reform when there is no such hope. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the, and, and that plays to the advantage of the regime. And so I would not be surprised in the coming months, we're already starting to see it, if we start hearing more from Hassan mm-hmm. Rouhani, former president, we're already hearing from uh, Mohammed Khatami, former president, these more pragmatic figures uh, who are considered more palatable interlocutors in the West, uh, and uh, them being brought into the scene to kind of dilute uh, the revolutionary sentiment in Iran and deflect Western scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think that they have any resonance with the people in Iran who are protesting on the streets demanding regime change. The, the, their, their presence or absence is irrelevant mm-hmm. for the Iranian mm-hmm. people because they're all, and in fact, one, they, they would argue that the reformists are more threatening than the hardliners because the right. reformists uh, fool uh, the exactly. international community. So, uh, you know, I think that we will start to see some of those figures recycled as mm-hmm. we've done, as, we, as, as Khamenei finds use uh, to have them on the scene. Uh, but right. uh, at the end of the day, the fundamentals will remain the same. Yeah, absolutely. I think you pointed to something so incredibly important and a nuance that we talk about in, in the Iranian diaspora about the real um, indication of the coming of age of these protesters is that they will absolutely absolutely not accept reform within this system. Meaning if the mullahs come tomorrow and say, you know what, forget the turbans, we're going to wear ripped jeans and we're going to be just like you guys, these guys wouldn't buy it for a moment. So I think you're absolutely right to say that the uh, Iranian people are very sensitive to that, um, just that that illusion of reform and kind of bringing these softer characters to make nice and kind of fool the West, but they won't fool the Iranian people. They, exactly. They've Very seen important. this movie before and they're not exactly buying Exactly right. Um, I want to come around to what what that tipping point will be in, in your mind. I mean, I know it's very difficult to say. There's no crystal ball here. What is that secret sauce? What's the secret recipe to getting that successful revolution re- regime change for the Iranian people? National strikes, uh, millions in the streets, uh, that kind of intensity will be required. And uh, I think that uh, unless and until we have that dynamic, I think we'll be uh, in a situation where uh, the regime uh, is clinging to power, unable to reform, and uh, the Iranian population uh, is uh, desperately yearning for uh, regime change and uh, not able to muster it at this given moment. Uh, So I think that that's what's going to be required. Uh, at the end of the day uh, for uh, their, that, that moment to come. You know, but- if we have, if we indeed are able to get to that moment, do you think that without um, a White House, that, that absolutely support, I should say White House, uh, it, it should be US and, and Europe uh, together, but without a Western w- world um, that, that supports regime change and actively supports it, meaning they verbally say it at the podium and do take steps that will actually help, meaning enforce sanctions and properly um, enforce them and, and um, you know, go down the list of, of all the different resources the West can provide the Iranian people. Do you think this is, this is something that the Iranian people could pull off without the help of the West? 
Well, I do think the West has uh, a definite role to play, and that is denying resources to the regime. Uh, and we are seeing already in the polling, some polling and that's coming out of Iran. And as you know, Lisa, polling is very rare there, and it's um, uh, there's r- rarely reliable data. But uh, some right. of the Gaman surveys have been very revealing, and they um, some of the polling that they conducted has suggested that. Uh, when asked if uh, the U.S. and the E3 should continue negotiations with the Islamic Republic, they say no. Uh, And I think that what the U.S. and Europe are risking is instead of, instead of, you know, they're so fearful of the notion of the notion of regime change given um, U.S. history on this subject. Mm -hmm. uh, And that uh, they might be committing a, a, a sin in the opposite direction in the minds of the Iranian people by actually intervening to empower the Islamic Republic at a time when there is a domestic political contest and war essentially between the people of Iran and the regime. And that could be considered an external interference by propping up the regime with resources and sanctions relief and mm-hmm. um quote, legitimacy uh, internationally, and that would be deeply unfortunate. So that is why we need to stop focusing solely, I'm not saying we shouldn't focus on it at all, but having the nuclear file be the Mm. be all and end all and the sole lens through which we view Iran. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a mistake. We have to widen the strategic aperture here. You're such a great guest, Jason, because you you really just segue perfectly into all my questions. And here we go for the final question, because I would be remiss if I brought you all the way here. And you're the policy director at UANI, United Against Nuclear Iran. So the big question that's on everyone's minds, and we see so many different reports about how far along Iran's regime is with regards to their nuclear weapon, do they in fact have a nuclear weapon already? Uh, how far along are they? How close are we? Is it two weeks? Is it two minutes? Are they right around the block? I mean, there's so many, um, you know, facts, quote unquote, thrown out there in different um, timelines. What's your timeline? Well, I think that the um, there's the, the consensus view, I think, between U.S., Europe and um, our allies in the Middle East is that Iran is uh, has a breakout timeline of a couple of weeks. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're a couple of, way, a couple of weeks away from a nuclear weapon. Uh, it would take, uh, according to most assessments, uh, a year to two years more for Iran to uh, perfect uh, the weaponization uh, part of the uh, nuclear arsenal equation in addition to the delivery vehicle. Is that from this moment? Because we've been hearing that and it's been about two years since we've been hearing that. Right, and that's that. That's the um, that's the big uh, debate and question right now because um, we uh, have only um, intelligence uh, insight into uh, the weaponization side. That was one of the glaring gaps in the JCPOA uh, in the fact that uh, that weaponization, the Ahmad program, mm-hmm. uh, that that program was uh, scattered in um, what's called SPND, uh, the Organization for Defensive and Innovation and Research, uh, which was formally headed by uh, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, who was assassinated uh, in 2020. And uh, he had employed 
even though one U.S. officials will say Iran has not restarted its nuclear weapon, there has not been a decision by the Supreme Leader to restart the nuclear program, Bahriza Day and SPND uh, actually re-employed thousands of people who had previously worked on the past nuclear weapons program in SPND, undertaking dual-use uh, research and development activities that have the applicability for the development of a nuclear weapon. And so that's why this is concerning. And uh, we need to uh, be very scrutinizing closely what's going on over there. Why shouldn't we believe they already have it? Well, I think that you bring up a bomb in a bunker, uh, that, 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 that the notion of um, them, you know, having that kind of capacity. And, and I think that the, there is some concern that uh, Iran uh, would uh, actually construct a crude nuclear uh, device that uh, doesn't have to um, develop all those uh, advanced uh, weaponization uh, components to it. Mm -hmm. uh, that would kind of reduce the weaponization timeline uh, that we have uh, that's prevailing in the West. Uh, but, uh, you know, the IAEA is not perfect uh, by far. And uh, I think that uh, we do have to be uh, on alert and on guard as to what's happening. Uh, and uh, that is why uh, we definitely need to increase our deterrence with respect to the Islamic Republic, because we need to deter them from taking those steps. There has been no meaningful pushback from the United States or the Europeans for steps that if you spoke to people 10 years ago and they you told them, oh, Iran has been enriching to 60%, some mm. of the people would argue then that would precipitate their, their trigger for a military strike. Right. So uh, that's why we need to reestablish deterrence with uh, Iran that has been missing. Well, from your ears to the White House, from your mouth to the White House's <laughs> ears. Um, before I let you go, I want to also let you talk about a new initiative that you are a part of, uh, a new group that is offering support to the um, advocates for Iranian people. Go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, I'm uh, very proud to be uh, a member of a new group called the Jewish Committee to Support Woman Life Freedom in Iran. This is a bipartisan organization comprised of former officials who served in Democrat and Republican administrations, uh, and also former elected officials on both sides of the aisle, um, uh, philanthropists, policy experts, and uh, in keeping with core Judaic values of what we call tikkun olam, which means repairing the world, uh, we uh, are seeking to connect the American Jewish community uh, with the Iranian diaspora because we sense that there is a real desire and energy and unprecedented unity uh, in uh, the West uh, among their community to uh, amplify the voices of their compatriots. And uh, we'd like to be supportive in that effort. And uh, so we will be um, fundraising in the American Jewish community and offering micro grants uh, for uh, activists around the world. Uh, who uh, are trying to amplify the voices of the Iranian people in Western capitals. Wonderful. And really, we, we urge everyone in whatever capacity you can to retweet and share and post and just raise awareness in, in whatever capacity that you are able to follow Jason along on social media. I think he, he offers so much rich material also yuani uh they've been at it for so many years and uh, i'm i'm really i'm proud to say that i've been following along in your journey as well and um really 
proud to, to be uh, friends and, and really uh, colleagues together in this in this fight for good. Uh, congratulations on this new initiative and thank you for coming on uh, our program. For those of you who would like to sign up for our weekly podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftair. You can also uh, listen wherever you get your podcast. You can also sign up for our daily top 10 email to get the top headlines of the day. Go to foreigndesknews.com and you can sign up there. See you all next week.